Hey guys, welcome to the Underground Church Podcast. I'm Abraham, and I'm with my brother James. What's going on, guys? And today we're going to start talking about music. So what is it about music that you wanted to talk about, James? Well, you know, I believe that this is a topic that we can always come back to as a composer, songwriter. It's always fun for me to talk about this topic because you get vastly different viewpoints on music in different church cultures. And so this is a great topic to talk about. We do have a Bible study, a video Bible study on this. So if you guys want to check that out, check out our UGC Bible studies playlist. It'll be down in the description if you're on the video version of this. But and if anyways, you're on pure audio, you know, check out our YouTube channel. There you go. So yeah, so First and foremost, in that video Bible study, we really break down, we go verse by verse. And so that's something where I try to be as factual and biblical as possible without inserting my own opinions into the Bible in order to argue for my personal traditions or something like that, right? But ultimately, because of the nature of music, more so than like other doctrines, it's going to come down to a little bit of opinion as well and preference because the nature of music is that music exists to evoke emotion in a way that you then use music to glorify God, right? But that's what music is doing. It's evoking emotion. So it's funny because <laughs> emotions are subjective, right? So this is why music is such a difficult topic to talk about. But Let's just kind of wing it, man, because that video Bible study is very structured and it gets very deep. And um, I did that on purpose to it cover as much ground as possible. I was really impressed by that video, actually. Thanks, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So the context of Christian music, right? We have on one end of the spectrum, we have, it would be called the charismatics, right? Where it's like the Hillsong worship stuff. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the hymns, right? Yeah, I guess that's one way to look at it. But even within that spectrum is a lot of differences, right? Yeah. So you can't just lump everything into one category because I'm not sure if Hillsong is a church that speaks in tongues. And I think the most important thing, first and foremost, is that a church has sound doctrine. I think hymns, the lyrics are very biblical. And I think a lot of them are very powerful and they've moved me in a way, in a much deeper way than a lot of the contemporary worship music that I've listened to. I find that there's not much substance. And that's just, you know, that's my personal kind of preference. But also, I don't agree with the people. For example, I remember I was going, uh, we we're going out to go evangelize, right? And the person that was driving starts playing some Western music. And I'd never listened to Western music before. And so he was showing me and this very conservative lady and you know, she's great, you know, but the culture that she grew up in, she automatically disapproved of that kind of music. She's like, oh, you guys shouldn't be listening to that music. And my response was, why? Why? It's a story. Western music, they tell stories, oftentimes true stories. So why? You know, and that's where traditions come in, I think. There's a personal preference and there's tradition, and there's what's biblical. And I think it's really important for people to, 
in this charged topic, what is biblical? If you're judging a type of contemporary music, then on what basis are we going to judge? On what basis are we going to evaluate this music? Are we going to do it by how it feels? Or are we going to do it by the content? Like, even then, a personal preference could come in. So what do you think, James? Yeah, I mean, let's get into it because there's so many aspects of this that we can talk about. So first and foremost, the lyrics, right? Yeah, the lyrics. Um, some Christian contemporary music, if that's a category, which, by the way, that's changed even in our lifetime, right? What's contemporary is always changing. So even that is changed. Even those styles have changed. I've watched them change from how it was even 15 years ago. But I can understand the concern of a lot of these songs having some weak doctrine or just unbiblical lyrics. But then again, the other day I turned on the radio and I don't do this all the time, but you know, I was curious. I listened to a couple of the Christian contemporary music songs and some of them are having some pretty good doctrine now in their lyrics. I was surprised. I was like, wow, those lyrics are pretty solid now. Not all of them, but the other thing too, that I need to mention is that I think people are coming at this from like a really, a fearful perspective where they're like afraid of listening that something might touch their ears that could potentially be demonic with this perspective of whatever they've grown up with or whatever is familiar to them. They've been taught, okay, this is what godly music is. So they're familiar with this genre of music. And then when they come into contact with something that's unfamiliar, that automatically is perceived by them because they're so scared of like everything being of Satan, unless it's familiar to their church culture that they grew up in. They're going to worry and they're going to think this must be satanic, you know, but here's a question that I have for that is let's say we have like a Christian film, like the movie, the 10 commandments, or let's say there's a film about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, right? Well, are we always going to play happy, pleasant, nice sounding music behind every single scene? What kind of music do we play? We can choose to have no music behind the scene. What kind of music do we play behind the scene of Jesus Christ getting crucified? Obviously, that's going to have to be, if you want to accurately depict the situation of what is going on, that music by nature has to be darker, what we call maybe a minor key, right? So not everything is going to be in a major key, a happy key all the time. <laughs> that is a silly, that's almost like a overly protected version of Christianity. Sometimes, look, the way that I see it is that sometimes when I watch some, not all, some conservative cultured Baptist churches that we might share doctrine with, I watch some of their music sessions and I can enjoy a lot of them. But sometimes as a composer, as somebody who is naturally musically inclined, I'm listening to them and I'm like, this sounds a little bit cheesy simply because it's kind of hard to relate to it. Having gone through a lot of valleys and tough times with the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has put me through so much. I've seen darkness in my life. Okay? It doesn't mean that I dwell in darkness. A lot of times people try to paint you all the way in the opposite direction. It's like, what do you mean? You just, <laughs> and it's like, no, I don't dwell there, but that's a real thing. If you read the book of Psalms, David talks about what his bed was drowned in tears and all these things, right? These are real experiences. Surrounded by enemies. Right. <laughs> And it's like, well, you're just always going to play happy, 
perfect, you know, that's another thing. You got to realize that there are even opinions on composers. For example, let's just take Mozart, right? A lot of Christian listeners, if we'll just say that, don't like Mozart because they say that his music is too perfect. It's too perfect. It's a little bit hard to relate to, right? Because it doesn't really accurately depict real life. You know, there's going to be dark times. There's going to be victorious times. I mean, look at the Bible about how this happened and how they worshiped and praised God a lot of times in victorious moments, in times of battle. You know, sometimes like with Gideon, they smashed jars. So the best kind of musician or composer for God will understand that the music that you create or that you apply to a project, a larger project, it has to be accurate to the situation. What are you trying to depict on a bigger scale? Because music occurs in a moment of time that you're just trying to tell a piece of a story oftentimes, right? So the part of the story that you're currently trying to tell might not be all happy and, and perfect, right? But that's what I'm saying is a lot of times you'll tune into some of these worship sessions from the more conservative side. It has become this thing where it has to be so clean and perfect on the outside. And by the way, there's preferences there too. I enjoy many hymns, okay? But there's preferences there where, for example, the style of many now traditional hymns is that the intervals between notes tends to be greater, right? So it could seem a little more, to the listener who knows this, it could seem a little more dramatic or it can come across more of a showy thing rather than something that is really realistic. For, okay, you know what? This is why it's so funny because they oftentimes will view it the opposite. They think like, okay, well, if you get up there and you might be playing an electric guitar, then and if somebody's playing the drums, well, that's a big show, right? Yeah, sometimes it can be because if they're wearing shirts with like big logos on it and distracting people and spiking their hair up or something, absolutely, then now it becomes a show. This is why I say, you know, spectrum is wide and there's people all over the place. But there can also be people who play an electric guitar. They might not even put any distortion or overdrive on that electric guitar. You know, it might just have a nice clean sound like a Fender Strat or like a Fender Telecaster. But what's funny is like, the notes that maybe contemporary Christian music might sometimes play is they have less of an interval distance, interval jumps between them. It can oftentimes feel a little closer to home. Maybe you're sitting at the edge of a lake and you're just there and it's just you and God. And it doesn't have to be this grandiose, great thing of like, da -da 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 -da, like this kind of classical style, right? just to put it in layman's terms, but it doesn't have to be like that. It could just be something where you just go back and forth between two or three notes that are closer together, but it's simple and you're just sitting there and it's just you and God and you're reflecting over something deep that happens in your spiritual walk with God. You see, that's just one example I can give, okay? Because not all hymns are written with large intervals and stuff. Full of perfect fifths, like a, like a news, news, uh, news intro. Right. Or like an anthem. And um, we are always being used by God to reach people, to be a witness and to reach people in the lost world, right? And so this is the difficult question of, number one, we're not supposed to look exactly like the lost world on the outward appearance. We're not, okay? But then at the same time, 
Imagine what goes through the mind of somebody who's curious about coming to Christ to now they have to assimilate into this massive cultural shift of so many things just to become a part of church. A lot of that stuff is unnecessary. You, you know? know, I totally agree. It's, it's interesting because so how you see that in the conservative churches, I see a lot of that in the more liberal charismatic churches as well. And I remember being being at a church and it was like, oh, I felt like this music was romance music, you know, like sensual romance music, but with God or like Jesus type of vibe. Oh, absolutely. Don't like that stuff. I agree with you on that point 100 percent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, look, historically, it has to do with the feminization of the church. It actually started with a movement of nuns who were kind of nun mystics, and they kept speaking of being penetrated by God, and they they were using these like very quasi-sexual words, you know, in how they talked. And apparently this culture had begun to seep into a lot of Christian sects. And a lot of that, it just is not representative of what worship looks like in the Bible, you know? Right. And now, but we have this like very sensual music entering the church with no lyrical content, right? No doctrinal content, and it's all emotion. And so that angle too, because for me, if I were to if I were to enter this church, it's such a big cultural shift. It's it's like I would almost have to emasculate myself to enter the you know to belong in this church. Just like absolutely, how- and I completely agree with you on that point. And that's good. We can now, Nate, let's start talking about that end of the spectrum as well. But here's the thing, the point to make before we do is that this is the common error that is made by both sides, right? Because of ethnocentrism, right? Ethnocentrism, here, I'll just type it in up here since we haven't really used the screen at all. (laughs) So ethnocentrism, right? Evaluation of other cultures according to the preconceptions originating in the standards and customs of one's own culture. Okay, so ethnocentrism, by the way, this is also a term I even learned in Bible college. I mean, we knew about it before then, but, you know, they teach this. I went to a King James Bible college, classic dispensational in Florida, just to note that, just so people don't think that I'm arguing for liberal culture in churches either. You know, what I'm doing is I'm providing, I'm oftentimes speaking to my fellow Baptists that have Baptist doctrine, just to try and show them a different perspective, right? But you're absolutely right in the other direction too, because myself, as well as you, Abraham, we both have our different experiences with the, with the other side of the spectrum as well. Oh, so yeah. we can start talking about that. But the first thing that I want to point out is that oftentimes the excuse that both ends of the spectrum will use to not consider a different viewpoint is that as soon as they hear somebody who's coming from a different viewpoint, they'll automatically paint them as all the way on the other side of the spectrum, right? So it's like, oh, so you don't like our hymns? You must be one of those people who are singing these romance songs to Jesus that have three lines that they repeat over and over again. See, people don't realize that there's a broad spectrum and there's churches all within this spectrum that have all different kinds of musical preferences. I actually think that the Bible college that I went to in Florida They use the King James Bible, right? Yet their music was fairly conservative, but at times they could still use the acoustic guitar. They even had an older gentleman playing the electric guitar at times, a little more bluegrassy, you know, some classic American sounds. (laughs) But then there were also times where 
they had somebody come up and play the harp and it was just the harp, you know, so that classic biblical instrument, the harp, which, okay, by the way, side note, I have to note this as well, right? I think I was in a forum and I was sharing one of our videos from UGC about music in that forum. And the immediate response I got from somebody was they said, oh, you mispronounced the word psaltery, right? So there's an instrument in the Bible the two stringed instruments that are cited over and over again in the Bible are the harp and the psaltery, right? So he said, but you mispronounced psaltery. I said soldery, right? That's how I pronounced it. And so I was like, the word psaltery phonetically has an immediate phonetical association with the word psaltery, right? So something to keep in mind is that I'm making a video how I'm trying to defend slightly more liberal cultured music, considered liberal cultured music to these conservative cultured churches, right? And so now I'm going to be constantly saying this word that has a direct phonetical association to the word sultry. And look at the definition of sultry, attractive in a way that suggests a passionate nature. So that would have been counterproductive if I constantly was saying that word. That's just something it's like tomato, tomato. If I want to say soldery and not sultry, I could have just said soldery, you know, it's a big deal, you know, so that came up, but that really just shows the fact that that was the immediate reaction to, you know, how I was pronouncing an instrument is just uh, shows kind of like this nitpicky, rigid nature of sometimes it's, it's really hard to get a new opinion across to some of these conservative culture churches where you're just like, that really doesn't matter. It is literally a tomato, tomato situation. You know, we don't even really use the sultry that much anymore. Maybe it's time that we just start calling it the soldery. And so um, I'm sure that there are other instruments out there and there are many words out there that have multiple ways of pronouncing them, right? So that really doesn't matter. But I had to point that out because that was like an immediate reaction I got rather than paying attention to the overall message behind that video. It was like this nitpicky response. Yeah, because anyway. the person completely missed the point of the video. right. You know, what I know about ethnocentrism in the Bible is that if we look in the New Testament and Paul writing to the different cities, all these cities have different cultural properties, right? But all these cultures are still represented in the Bible. So this might be a little bit far-fetched, but like in music, you have different preferences. Like the lady I was talking about before, she obviously did not like contemporary music because she believed that it led to lots of other music that might be bad or it leads to bad behavior. I'm not sure exactly what her reasoning is, but it's obvious she disapproved of it. Right. Okay. Let's address that really quickly then. Yeah. That whole gateway okay. arguments, like as if it's some kind of a gateway drug or something. Cause I think that that is the genuine concern. I think that really a lot of these pastors or even music leaders and some of these more conservative culture churches, I think they know that we're stating the facts here. They know that we're right. But really what they're trying to do is they're trying to protect, especially the younger people, the youth, from slowly sliding away into more and more contemporary and then secular music, right? And so they're trying to protect. But here, I got to say this. So now it's like protecting them from this gateway drug. I have to say this. Look, <laughs> for example, when I was at Bible college, okay, one thing I didn't agree with how that Bible college was uh, doing things for the younger people. There were some people that were younger than me. They were straight out of high school and they were living in the dorms there and they took away almost everything. They took away the TV, 
they took away all kinds of things. And I was thinking, I was like, you know, what, ha- what always happens, you see it over and over again, okay? This is not an opinion or a theory. You see this happen over and over again. What always happens to those kinds of people when they finally get thrown out there into the world and now they have all this freedom suddenly just given to them, right? Where they didn't have before more freedom to make some mistakes or, you know, make their own choices, give a little bit more leeway. That makes them more responsible and it gives them practice in that area. But now what you're doing is you're protecting them so much that when they finally get out there into the real world, a lot of them swing all the way in the opposite direction and they go, yikes, right? They'll become these like, it happens a lot. That's what happened to me. Animals. They might even just abandon Jesus Christ altogether. And hey, this is why like that's the mentality what of protecting. Me. Oh, there you go. You know. Yeah. I mean, you know, all throughout middle school and high school, I was the, you know, my school's president of the Christian club. I was doing the Bible study once a week and a prayer meeting once a week at my school too. I was, uh, you know, the lead vocal and the rhythm guitar for the worship team. Right. I play drums right behind you, bro. Yeah. And so all intents and purposes, I was a young leader in the church, what people would consider a strong Christian. And in my naivete, I decided, okay, well, God, I think I'm going to go to the most liberal school in the United States. So I did. And lo and behold, like James was saying, I was not prepared. I was not prepared culturally for what was going to happen. And you know what? Because I was not acclimated, this is one of the many reasons why, right? I was not acclimated. I was a young kid with very little life experience and very, very involved in the church, reading the Bible all the time, fasting, praying, you know, all that put me in a different environment. Boom. A sudden yet steady transition into a more new age hippie mentality. Because you know, you and, had and it, no it, clue how to deal with that environment. No, right? I, I did so not. That, I had no training. The solution, the solution was to just wall you off from it entirely rather than allowing you. The real training should have been that you had, first and foremost, the foundation is the Bible, but there also has to be a, a sense of personal responsibility and individual freedom. You have to be able to have some kind of personal freedom in your life to even have the capability of making a mistake, right? Without just being protected and walled off from it. And that actually makes you wiser. And so I would not be able to relate with people that believe in new age practices or are Buddhists or Taoists, you know, all, a lot of these philosophies and these worldviews and these beliefs that people believe in, I would not be able to relate with these people and talk with these people unless I had those experiences as well, you know? So in fact, God ended up using that, using those trials and using those temptations and tribulations, you know, for the ultimate good. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, coming from my experience, that's why I, James, I completely agree with you. Because if you protect the kids from everything, then when they go into the world, they will just be overwhelmed. And, that's not something that I would wish upon young Abe again, and that's not something I'd wish on any young Christian being raised up in this world today. Right. It's funny, man, because that happened to a lot of us who were in that older youth group leadership. We were like seniors in high school at and that most point. Most of us didn't come back. Right? Yeah, most of us. <laughs> exactly. And uh, you know what's funny, though? I remember up until senior year of high school, we had grown up in the church. And we were church-cultured individuals. 
And we would do things like we would have prayer nights where we would get up behind the microphone and we would encourage those in the audience. Some of them were our peers, like in high school, right? Who we viewed them as they weren't taking their walk as seriously with God. By the way, we were, maybe we had a little bit more of like a lordship salvation mindset where we didn't really understand where to draw the line between like what grace is versus where your works come in with God. So what that did was that breeded more self-righteousness in us where we were like, no, if you're saved, you absolutely always will be living holy. We kind of had some of that mentality, right? And so we get behind that microphone as leaders in this youth group and we would in a soft way rebuke some of our fellow students where we're like, come on, guys, we thought we were encouraging them, you know, take it more seriously. You know, God is that. We had no clue what we were doing. <laughs> like, honestly, let's be honest. We had no clue what we were talking about because we had not been out there in the real world in the real thick of the spiritual battle yet. And also we had not fallen yet. We had not, you know, let every man take heed lest he fall. Right. We had not really fallen. So a lot of self-righteousness had come from us just being protected and growing up and groomed in this church culture, walled off from the real darkness of the world. We well, had a very doing my best, you know, and what I realized coming back from this is how little I understood of people that might not have the same level of dedication that I might have had or the same level of love for the word or anything like that, you know, or love for worshiping God or, you know, all this. You're looking back. I realized how naive I was back then. Absolutely. And some of those same people that we spoke to in that audience, we are now good friends with them. And they've come around to Christ because, yeah. you know, what's funny. It, what worked was not us, you know, getting more and more cleaning. Yeah. yeah. What worked was that God had to actually humble us and yeah. we had to be allowed to kind of almost like fail. <laughs> you know, we were still at a young age, but we had to kind of experience how the world really was outside of this like sheltered Christianity. And now we really understand other people outside of church culture and we can really reach them. Well, I'm telling you, man, it's, this is not a, a boast because this comes from a place of us messing up. Right. Yeah. But it's like, I can really relate to most people in the world a lot better than I could before when I just grew up walled off in that church culture. And so I've reached a lot since then. And uh, especially those guys, I remember those particular guys that were in that audience that we used to try that method. It didn't work at all. And what we did was now we became friends with them and they came around to Christ because they saw like a real aspect of who we are. And they said, wow, you don't look like any of these other churchians who they grew up in that bubble. How do they understand anything about me and my life? Because they honestly felt like they never fit into that because a lot of them saw a lot of duplicitousness and a lot of kind of what they viewed as fake behavior in the church because a lot of people that just grow up in that church culture that are always squeaky clean, they adopt these theories and these traditional, it's really like traditional theories that are not always biblical and are not realistic in the real world. And this applies to both ends of the spectrum and everywhere in between. This applies to the most liberal, charismatic churchgoers, and it applies to the most conservative of conservative Christians. You know, in the end, that's why a lot of this time, we I like to call it churchianism, because it ends up not being about the Bible. It ends up not being about what God says. 
and it ends up being about what I'm comfortable with because the people around me are comfortable with it or because we've been doing this for 150 years, dang damn it, you know, and we're, <laughs> we're going to continue doing it this way, you know, and that is, is culture and that is not, that is ethnocentrism, that is not Bible centrism, it's not God centrism, it's not Christ centrism. Right. And you know what? People got to really understand just how powerful ethnocentrism is oh, because yeah. unless you have really experienced multiple cultures, and I mean really experienced, I don't mean just go on a, a short little mission trip where you handed out tracks or something like that. I mean, like you became a part of that group, you were considered one of them, multiple cultures. Unless you have done that, you have not really seen yet how ethnocentrism has affected you. Because when you have grown up in one or maybe just one or two cultures, ethnocentrism is going to have a much stronger effect on you than you realize. And let me give a specific example, because we grew up in a church that did not use or even consider the King James Bible issue at all. Right. And somebody eventually, I think it was a pastor or something, somebody came in there and preferred the King James Bible. And he wanted to like switch out our Bibles for the King James Bible. Not sure if he was the best representative of that issue from, from what I remember looking back, but somebody was doing that. And I remember my immediate response was just like looking around at my peers and I was like, none of my church cultured people from all the churches I grew up in and all the people I know, none of us know about this King James issue. And I completely just didn't take it seriously in the slightest. I was like, what? Like, this must not be a big issue because God has not... Apparently, God has not brought it forth to any of the Christians around me in this bubble of a few churches that we grew up in in this area. And so I completely see I don't I didn't have any kind of independent thinking practice because I had been reinforced by the ethnocentrism of the group, because from an early age, you learn the traditions and the cultural norms of that group just by osmosis. It just becomes normal. It's almost like Stockholm syndrome. And then now you're just a functioning member where that's just a reflex. It's almost just like subconscious that you, it's like riding a bicycle. You just go through the motions. You show up at church and you're just accepted as one of the members. And it's kind of dangerous because when somebody comes from the outside, it's like almost impossible to take that person seriously because you immediately fall back on the ethnocentrism of your group. You immediately just look around at your friends and you're just like, what? None of us, I've never even heard of this. Like, I'm not going to take this seriously in the slightest. Like, who is this person? We have pastors here. God appoints pastors. See, it's just, that's it. That's the short checklist. And now you're done. And you never think about the King James Bible issue ever again. Right. It came many years later when I actually had been in multiple cultures. And I realized, I was like, wow, these people really do things differently from one another. And they're very convicted that the way that they do things is right. And the way that the other side does things is completely wrong. And both sides have some decent arguments. And then what that made me do is I had to say, you know what? I have to do some prayer and some fasting and I have to study this for myself. I have to start exercising that brain that God gave me, right? I can't just fall back on like looking around at my peers anymore. And so that sent me on a journey of really studying and practicing that independent thinking ability where it's just me and God. And then me analyzing things and trying to figure out for myself, not leaning on the opinions of the group, because there is no one group that has all the answers. If they did, then <laughs> I haven't found them yet. All right. So, yeah, we covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast. I like that it was a little more 
just a little more free flowing. It wasn't overly structured. Yeah. Um, that's okay to do once in a while. Right. And yeah. So if you want a really structured biblical, what is it? If you want a really biblical, a fully biblical exposition that James took the time to make and put together, I promise you it's going to be worth your time and it's also very entertaining, then head over to our YouTube channel and check out the Bible study playlist. I think it's Bible study number three on Christian contemporary music. And so the link at the bottom of the description will be for the UGC Bible studies playlist. And for those of you guys who come from more of the conservative and who are very against contemporary music, I would really ask you to consider what we talked about in our life experience and how God used us from the experiences that we had going out to and then coming back into the world. And those of you on the more charismatic side, I would like to encourage you guys to delve more into scripture and to study doctrine, especially I will recommend looking into dispensationalism. Really quick, I have to clear this up. There is a common argument that immediately pops up when you just Google it against dispensationalism that it was created by John Nelson Darby in the 1800s, right? That's false, okay? That's, that is completely false. Like the idea of a rapture and dispensationalism being created by John Nelson Darby, that is false. Dispensationalism has been around in each century. There are writings of Christians that were dispensationalism. Even Augustine was a dispensationalist in his writings. And then all the way back to the second century, you had Irenaeus who believed that the church was going to be caught up, was going to be raptured before the tribulation period. So that's how well-known it is. And yet somehow still there is a non-dispensational narrative that has become popularized in recent times. You know, this is traditional Baptist doctrine. So that is our doctrine here at UGC. We are traditional Baptists in our doctrine. We are dispensational. Dispensational meaning that God deals with human beings in different ways in different times, but he still has covenants between him and humans as well. So dispensationalism does not get rid of, nullify, or change the covenants. And that is a traditional stance in the church. It goes back to, for example, the Anabaptists, and once again, in every century, there's writings about dispensationalism and a rapture, right? A pre-tribulation rapture. And so that is our stance. It is a very traditional orthodox stance in the church. I want to encourage you guys to delve into that, study that. And that can provide some great context and some great contents on how to write good lyrics for future songs. All right, guys, this is the UGC podcast, and we'll see you guys next time.